The ticking of the small alarm clock flying downwards on the Apple Macintosh computer breaks the stillness of my Rathmines flat. The converted attic is sparsely furnished with many patches of wear on the cheap carpet. An almost useless electric fire in the centre. Posters of Jack Charlton and the Irish soccer team take pride of place on each paper-thin wall. Congealed grease of dinner stuck to plates in the kitchen sink. The porridge dish from breakfast is dry on the draining board. It's late on a Saturday night. Maybe it's even early Sunday morning. I watch a classic Queen's Park Rangers victory over Liverpool on match of the day. Then down to the 24-hour shop to buy the Sunday papers. It is a depressing experience. Although the hypnotic sweep of the Milky Way weaves a dazzling patch of light, while some of the larger stars hang like lanterns in the sky. With the backing orchestra of a full moon, the stars transmit a magical milky radiance. I am troubled by one image. A drunk, maybe a junkie, squatting on the steps of the post office, arms across his knees, eyes listless. Occasionally, he moves his head from side to side, as if he is following some strange, self-hypnotic inner rhythm. His semi-blackened face, the results of weeks without washing, give his eyes a haunted look. His only blanket is a thin, torn sack. In the relative warmth of my so-called home, I shudder at the sight of the 40 uncorrected copies which await my attention before Monday morning. The last thing I need after a hard week's teaching, or at least trying to teach. The milk in the jug has gone a bit off in the past day. The mug of steaming tea is strong enough to float my cap on, if I had a cap. I put on my cassette of U2's Joshua Tree for the 10,000th time, before dipping into the Sunday Tribune. Yet another story about Charles and Diana. A major movie is to be made in Dublin, with a string of top Hollywood names involved. Maybe even Robert De Niro. A new clampdown is ordered on urban crime, and Julia Roberts is spotted with a mystery man in Kerry. My drowsy eyes suddenly explode into life at the sight of an old photograph of a man and a young boy patting a Connemara pony. I feel a lump in my throat. It stems from an experience of loss, a sense of fragmentation that the old ways are dead or at least on a life support machine. The old man cuts a tall figure in an ill-fitting, threadbare black suit. An old sky-blue scarf is draped casually around his neck. His once dark hair is silver now. His eyes blue eyes are set in an exquisitely craggy face. The picture is like a Pandora's box, which opens a cascade of emotions within me. Despite my best efforts to the contrary, tears blur my vision and topple in steady streams along my cheeks. In that moment, I am transported to another time and place. And Arkle is the leader. Arkle has taken the lead off Milhouse, and Milhouse has no answer to Arkle's speed as they come towards the last bend. It's Arkle for Ireland. And both riders are hard at it. Here they come into the last. Arkle over first, Milhouse over second. On the run-in with 150 yards to go. It's Arkle for Ireland. A great shout goes up for the 
stand as Pat Sharp has Milhouse's measure. The Gold Cup's going to go to Ireland with 100 yards to run. It's Ireland's Gold Cup to Arkell. Arkell is the winner. Milhouse is beaten. The champion is dethroned. Arkell was a wonder horse and my first hero. I had no idea of my own family tree, but I knew everything about Arkells. My most enduring memories of my father are of horses on summer days. He would carry a bag with two bottles of tea wrapped in two old stockings, a five-naggin whiskey bottle for himself and a naggin bottle for me as we went off to save the hay. When he took a break for his meal, he filled my head with stories of Ireland's greatest racehorses. Just to be in his company made me feel that the world was in season. How I've waited for this moment To be by your side Your best friend wrote and told me You had teardrops in your eyes Daddy's home Daddy's home the bog. I took it upon myself to look after the slain, which my father used to cut the turf. I thought of it as my weapon. I felt it was important to give the slain a name. King Arthur, or somebody like him, had called his sword Excalibur. I called mine the Monster Killer. Although at his back-breaking work, there was something special, almost spiritual, about the bog. The scent of turf fires and bog tea was a sensory pleasure. All human life was there, women, men, young, old, happy, sad, the industries and the lethargic. Although it was a very exposed terrain if the weather was nasty, when the sun was shining, I always felt that God was smiling on the world. Everything was in harmony. It was my very own Garden of Eden. Another especially warm memory for me was the day my father brought home our first television set when I was four. I quickly developed a love for one programme. was not to last. On the last Saturday of October 1967, my father died. He was 35 years old. Looking back now, I mourn for the unfinished business between us. So many things that I would like to say, but never got the chance. I wasn't there that morning When my father passed away didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. Think I caught his spirit later that same year. I'm sure I heard his echo in my baby's newborn tears. I just wish I could have told him in the My grandfather became possibly the most important person in my life. I was called after him. Even his birthday was the same as mine. I loved being with him on the rare occasions he was working with the horse. I was enthralled by the magnificence of the animal. Noble, imperious, majestic, powerful. Yet my abiding image of my grandfather is in his donkey and cart. The donkey knew the field so well that there was no need to steer. The only flaw in his makeup was that he had fear of water arising from the fact that he had fallen into a bog hole in his youth. 
There was one reason why I love my grandfather so much. It was that he always listened to me. He never cut me off in midstream. I always felt that he valued my opinion, even when my ideas were totally harebrained. I was deeply grateful that he was living with us, otherwise I would have just been a mammy's boy, without a dominant male in my life. I sat beside him in the chapel for mass and religious ceremonies, especially the parish mission, which we had every second year. The announcement of the mission was greeted with some excitement. We'll never fear it till the mission was a standard comment. The priest tried to drum up some enthusiasm and spiritual fervour by describing it as an occasion of grace. For most people, the mission was one of the parish's great social occasions. Some of the women wore hats. The hats, in turn, provoked intense discussion amongst the women outside the chapel afterwards. Their talk was inevitably fascinating for many reasons, not least of which was that delightful blend of articulate bitchery and polite, well-dressed savagery. The comments represented in condensed form the spontaneous venom of the parishioners, charming little darts, Wicked little stabs, though sometimes not so little, which were merciless, battering some poor unfortunate without relief or hesitation. Then conversation was abruptly halted when one of the fold was summoned to the car. Breakfast on Sunday morning was conducted in semi-silence in deference to Kira Makmahuna. My grandfather's favourite music was birds singing. He especially loved the cuckoo, which sent its voice of mystery from out the woodland depths and wide open spaces, calling nature to rejoice at the advent of spring. The song of the cuckoo was an echo of the halcyon days in paradise, rendering nature what it truly is. Beautiful, poetic, life at its innocent best, the world as it ought to be, the ideal for a moment realised. As we took refuge in a canopy of trees during April showers, everything seemed made from memory. The sound of the cuckoo enshrouded us with a redemptive feeling, melting away depression, pain, bitter disappointment. Her dulcet tones hinted at a bygone age, of innocence and values that no longer obtain. The music was sweet and sensual, evocative of a higher world. After Dana won the Eurovision, we all became more interested in music. Radio in particular was part of the furniture of people's lives. Everybody had their own favourites, but one programme was compulsive listening in our house. 
This is Frankie Byrne with another edition of Woman's Page, a program for and maybe about you. Now, the problems I'll be discussing today may not be yours, but they could be someday. At all events, Woman's Page draws us material from the lives and events of real people. And it comes to you now with the compliments of Jacobs, the biscuit makers. An occasional feature of our family life was the retrieval of the dust-laden gramophone from its normal resting place under my grandparents' bed. The first time I saw it, I thought it was a museum piece. It had a quaint old-world appearance, that to be wound up manually like a tin soldier. Although we had about 20 gramophone records, one song still lives in my memory. Shine is beginning Close by the window Young Eileen is spinning Bent o'er the fire Her blind grandmother sitting Is crooning and mourning And drowsily knitting Eileen current Christmas was always the high point of the year for me Particularly Big Saturday When we all went into town To bring home the Christmas my sisters and I went to Santa Claus. One year in particular stands out. Armed with a shining two-shilling piece, a gift from my grandfather, the requisite fee for the honour of receiving Santi, I took my place in the queue in a state of high excitement. I was very surprised to see a nun with three small children of the local travelling family who lived in a big tent by the side of the road. Every time I passed that excuse for a dwelling on my bike, I was chilled by the constant chorus of children coughing. A few months earlier, that family of travellers had come to live a mile and a half away and had been shunned by some of the local community. They were refused entry to some local pubs and shops. At Sunday Mass, they sat together on the back seat of the church. None of the upright pillars of the community would sit on the same seat as them. A few of the more superior parishioners decided to go to Mass in the neighbouring parish. I was going to ask Santi for a pair of boots and a football. However, my plans were modified when I got my first lesson in social awareness, hearing Santi's conversation with the youngest of the travelling children who was just ahead of me in the queue. Now, little boy, what will I bring you for Christmas? Please, sir, would you bring me a nice dry blanket? to keep me warm on the cold nights. How could I possibly ask for two presents after that? I just asked for a football and did not complain when I discovered that I got poor value for my two shillings when Santi handed me a cheap-looking colouring book. My first task every morning was to go down to the hen house to feed the hens. Inevitably, the first subject of conversation at breakfast was the number of eggs collected. Local news was at a premium. With television, the outside world was coming into our home with increasing appeal. On a much smaller scale, my aunt's new record player opened up new possibilities, even though her record collection was limited to just one artist. Stay. 
With EEC membership, the point of demarcation between farming and commerce became harder to identify. These changes were not all to our advantage. One of the unforeseen consequences was that the sounds changed. I always loved on a warm June evening, milk can in hand, listening to the warm milk squirting into the pail as I milked the cows. Most of the animals were docile creatures. They allowed me to crouch in the stool and with my head against her flanks to effortlessly send a white milky jet hissing and frothing into the bucket. Soon, that music was replaced by the dull droning of the plague of clinical, time-efficient milking machines that infested the area. From my grandfather's point of view, the most disappointing feature of the change of landscape was the virtual disappearance of the corncrake. They were the victims of progress. When silage came, their natural habitat was destroyed. It was my father who had first introduced me to the sweet sound of the corncrake. Once we had gone out in the still light to check a newly born calf, we drank together from the bird's symphony of raucous notes pleading in the night. He seemed to bring out not just good tidings, but elation. I always associated that sound with sundering summers in the age of my innocence, before my father died. Memory is blurred and softened by time, but I always remember those summers as times of perpetual sunshine, bright moonscapes and the sound of laughter. I wondered if the corncrake suffered from insomnia. He always seemed to be in full voice, just as everyone else was trying to sleep. I often cursed the age of silage for depriving me not just of the corncrake, but of all the nostalgia, wide-eyed simplicity and the unadulterated happiness and excitement. Some of my friends at school spent their evenings stealing birds' eggs and vandalising nests. My grandfather made me solemnly swear that I would not partake of such activity. He saw it as a crime against nature, and psychologically and spiritually unhealthy, claiming, every time we kill something, something inside us dies too. The countryside smells changed also. I was never crazy about the scent of horse dung, but it was infinitely preferable to the pollution and impregnating smoke of tractors and heavy agricultural machinery. The sweet smell of hay was a sensory, almost sinfully sensual pleasure. By comparison, the assault on one's nose by silage was vulgar. In the haymaking season, it always seemed that all the scents of the earth and growing things which had been imprisoned were released by the summer sunshine in waves of piercing sweetness. Tastes were changing too. Around this time, my sister almost provoked a riot when she announced to both my grandfather and mother's horror that she would no longer drink cow's milk or eat homemade butter. When questioned as to where the milk would come from, she replied in all sincerity, from a bottle in the shop. I thought it would have been wiser to keep quiet about it rather than risk starting World War III and ask my mother to do the unthinkable and buy butter. My sister, though, had no such scruples. After three tense days, a compromise was eventually reached. She agreed to drink cow's milk and my mother agreed to start buying butter. (laughs) 
The shadow of emigration looked like a vulture hovering over its prey. It was the traditional Irish solution to economic problems. It churned out an assembly line of bodies for the boat to England and America. Immigration was central to the culture of the west of Ireland. Communities were stripped of their young people in the same way a flock of sheep would demolish a field of fresh grass. It shaped the way people thought and felt, conditioning them to accept the grotesquely abnormal as normal. That was the way it was, and that was the way it would always be. Although there were no industries, there was one highly developed export, people. There were many scenes of families travelling in block to the train station. Everyone wore their Sunday best. The mother was blind with tears. The father's eyes were dry, but his heart was breaking. Men did not betray emotion, would have been seen as a sign of weakness. The young people leaving leaned out of the window, choking with sadness as they saw their parents for perhaps the last time. Younger brothers and sisters raced after the train, shouting words of parting. Sometimes white handkerchiefs were produced and waved until the train went out of sight. Those handkerchiefs gave a ritual, almost sacramental solemnity to the goodbyes. Their presence was a symbol of defeat, a damning indictment of an economy unable to provide for its brightest and most talented. Hundreds of young and not-so-young people left every year. The collective tale of woe concealed thousands of individual nightmares. Young people wanted to stay in the country they loved, but had no way of making a living. They wanted to be close to family and friends, but they had no other choice but to leave. Many had good skills, some had excellent examination results. Yet the piece of paper that was most important was the ticket to America. Football provided an escape from our problems and anxieties. It allowed us to dream of better days to come. Success, albeit at a very modest level, such as winning the Connacht Championship in 1972, increased our self-esteem. We walked that little bit taller. We talked just a little more boldly. And we wore our primrose and blue paper caps with pride. Football was a battery that drove my imaginative life and dared me to see Roscommon in a very different light. Homework was ignored as I went off on my own for an hour to play an imaginary match here in Broke Park. In this field, Roscommon won an All-Ireland every day. The sticks I covered in primrose and blue coloured paper are still here in the corner. Every evening, as I mink the cows, I entertain myself, though not the cows, with my abysmal impersonation of me hollow hair. I 
was always the youngest boy ever to play in an All-Ireland final. And in every match, our opponents, usually Kerry, were confronted by a dynamic duo. My all-time hero, Dermot Early, and I. We would set up scores for each other. The only issue at stake was the size of our win. The more milk the cows had, the bigger was the margin of our victory. And then from 20 metres out, clears it away to Dermot Early. Dermot Early giving it to John O'Gara, John O'Gara to Tony McManus. Tony McManus placing it inside to Michal Finner. He gets it, the goalkeeper is out. Michal Finner with the shot, it's in the back of the net. My favourite season was spring, when the trees hummed with contentment. Rabbits made love in fields that proudly displayed their blankets of green. Thoughts of liberation filled all minds. Miracles of rebirth. As I look around me, I see the world in a different light. Everything is changing. As I got older, our carefully concealed bottle of putchine became an important feature of my life, particularly during the lambing season. When the lambs were born on cold nights, especially after a difficult birth, they were sometimes close to death and too weak to stand up. One of the most effective ways of pepping up the lamb was a spoonful of putchine. If the night was especially cold, the semi-comatose lamb was wrapped in an old coat or jumper, then brought into the house and put in a wooden box beside the fire. Such a box was a semi-permanent fixture around all sheep farming households. It took time to assimilate all the knowledge of the workings of this unique matriarchal culture. The best teacher in all of this was experience. I learned to read all the telltale signs that a yo was about to give birth. She would either move away from the rest of the flock or get close to another yo's lamb and try to lick her. Sometimes she would walk around in circles. This was a red light that said something was seriously wrong. I never failed to get a little thrill from bringing a lamb into the world, especially after a very difficult birth. I felt I was part, in some small way, of achieving the miracle of new life. It would be melodramatic to say it was a religious experience, but a warmth flowed through my body like a sliding, sun-dappled river. The birth was a language of hope, lyrical yet maddeningly inarticulate, alive to the resonances of everyday life. The first sound of the breathing of the new lamb was the breathing of hope. Once I witnessed the dawn breaking as I went out to check a sickly lamb. A tumult of sound greeted me, every bird in the fields singing its heart out, although it was still dark. Gradually the sky lightened and the low bruised clouds began to be caressed with red. Then, for a few moments, the birds fell silent. The carlers drew close and paused to seek out instruments searching for the string, the bow, the drum, to make the appropriate melody. That was the instant the sun appeared over the horizon. The birds went silent because of the wonder that was the only possible response. 
praise was secondary. It seemed that all of nature was affected by a tremor of excitement, adoring the Creator. Timelessness breathed through the daybreak like the pulse beat of a new baby. When the birds began to sing again, it was not the pre-dawn hubbub at all, but something more reverential, like a heavenly choir. Subtle tones resonated with ancient harmonies. It was like the first music ever made. All life was simplified. All thoughts were complete. Music was the best for this. The words of every day are unworthy vehicles to describe the transcendent. Another night I remember with affection was the night of the big snow, though none of the feelings I had at the time were warm. It was pitch dark as I came out of the house. My breath was coming out onto the cold air like puffs of steam from a kettle. A few swirling snowflakes drifted onto my head. Everything seemed to go wrong. I was to cycle the mile to where the flock was gathered, only to discover that my back wheel had developed a puncture. As if that wasn't bad enough, my flash lamp refused to work. I guessed my way along the side of the road, and once I stumbled and almost fell into the wet ditch. Strangely, I felt happy, though now the snow was making a moist carpet on my hair. The whole sky seemed to be filled with dizzy, dancing snow. To my utter amazement, I discovered through the veils of snow that one of our cows had given birth to twins. It was the only time I'd ever seen such a thing. The calves, though shivering, appeared to be healthy. I threw out armfuls of hay to the hungry animals, who had greedily now the snow had ceased. A light match formed a horizontal beam of light whenever I lost my bearings. As I caught my breath, I watched the sheep suppering at circular tables of snow. I was numb with cold. My feet, or what parts I could feel of them, were soaking, and I was physically exhausted. This was the life of a small farmer in the west of Ireland. I always smiled to myself when I watched television programmes like The Good Life, which presented a very romanticised notion of life on the land and the virtues of being close to nature. It was a lovely idea, but the reality was otherwise. In real life, being in tune with nature was harsh, a relentless battle with the elements, where the odds were stacked heavily in favour of nature. Summer was a season for mushrooms. I woke up early in the mornings during August to go out mushroom picking under the warm glow of the rising sun before gathering cows for the milking. I learned quickly that most valuable skill for any practitioner of my new profession. How to tell a field 
which would yield mushrooms from one which would not. Now and then I would reach Treasure Island, a seemingly limitless, just popped bunch of pure white mushrooms, lovingly caressing the green grass. My next task was to cycle down to the village pump for two buckets of water. Autumn was a harvest when we picked potatoes using old socks for gloves on damp, chilly evenings. Another autumnal event was when the thrasher came to our farm. It is difficult to believe that just 25 years ago the thrasher was a central part of life in rural Ireland. But now it is just a museum piece. My grandmother always rose early in the morning. It was the habit of a lifetime. It was she who called me at dawn in the morning I was to attend my first sheep fair. Within moments, a crystal clear spring light, unfettered by clouds, illuminated the landscape. As I looked out of the window, I saw the sky arching into a dome of blue above. I ran down the stairs to discover the kitchen empty. I was dumbfounded. My mother and grandfather must have left without me. With a sinking heart, I went to scan for any signs of them. My eyes were caught by the climbing spires of turf smoke. It seemed odd to have this amount of smoke so early in the morning. Again, I was taken aback to see our seven ducks waddling over to the pond, obviously fresh from their early morning feed. A few pigeons were glug-glugging and beginning the countdown to their early morning flight. Then they moved slightly higher to the takeoff position, and within seconds they were swirling playfully. I can still feel that acceleration of my heartbeat when I heard my grandfather shouting at the sheep up in the fields, his strong, clear voice shattering the stillness of early morning. They didn't need me for the simple job of shepherding the sheep onto the farmyard. I was as happy as Jason, returning triumphantly with the golden fleece. This was part of my initiation into manhood. The sheep walked steadily and kindly until we reached the outskirts of Ballygar, where there was a fair on the 18th of every month. The small town was a hive of activity, with dogs barking, farmers roaring, cattle looing, sheep straying into the wrong places. Chaos ensued when one farmer's flock became intermingled with another's. Inevitably, a major row resulted as both parties attempted to place blame for the misadventure onto the other. It was not the Holy Grail that I expected. In fact, it was mind-blowingly boring. If my grandmother was disappointed with the price we got for the sheep when we got home, she did not show it. I was never sure if her passive acceptance of bad news was born out of her faith or a sense of fatalism. Living on a small farm, we were particularly vulnerable to the death of animals. If a few animals, particularly cattle or calves, died, it decimated our paltry profits. The effects of such reversions were tangible. Christmas presents were smaller, new clothes were deferred a bit longer, old shoes remained in use, even when little holes began to appear in them. While the rest of the family would be devastated if a cow died, my grandmother would only say simply, It's God's will. For medicinal purposes, she had a bottle of putcheen stashed away in the top of her wardrobe. 
as putching was an illegal beverage. It was important that it was kept out of sight. I got into hot water when I was eight years old, when I mistook a bottle of putching for a bottle of holy water and gave it to a distant cousin home from America. Two cars in a line on a Saturday night In the backseat there was a gun Words are passed, a shotgun blast Trouble times Although I was physically like my father, I inherited many of my grandfather's characteristics and qualities. The gap of the two generations between us did not seem to matter. Whenever it was necessary, he had no hesitation in bringing me down a peg or two. But criticism was always tactfully offered. In the closeted comfort of his presence, I learned much about patience, kindness and selflessness. Part of my world collapsed on that May day in 1981 when I heard that he died. His funeral will live with me forever, looking down on a gathering for an occasion almost unbearably sad, a centre of my life gone. I was near to tears, and in my heart there was something stirring, a sense of outrage, a feeling of total despair. I could not bring myself to think of him in the past tense, but I'd seen the evidence of the previous night as he lay in his coffin. He seemed so calm as he smiled and held his rosary beads in his hand. I hoped fervently his body had been set free from his anguish and that he would find peace at last in a higher, more perfect world. As I walk these fields from which my heart can never be departed, I see his face. This land opens questions, often violent questions, about my history and identity, and goes even further to some secret compass point which directs me to somewhere I do not know, crossing boundaries where sadness and pain meet so dramatically. As I walk in this field, I try to listen to its secrets of lives gained and lives lost, strange richness and sadness. It has a music of its own. The melody which enters my consciousness is a melody of loneliness, poignant cries of quite despair. In these fields, people long dead live again, somehow speaking to ears that belong to people not yet born. The ghost of my grandfather will always linger in these fields. The life that I have is all that I have. The life that I have is yours. The love that I have of the life that I have is yours and yours and yours. A sleep I shall have, a rest I shall have. Yet death will be but a pause. For the peace of my years in the long green grass, 
will be yours and yours and yours. And as a life, you might say it wasn't much. He didn't impact upon the world as such. He wasn't even knocked down by the 16 bus. No bridge or road will ever bear his name. He isn't listed in some hall of fame. But he really did impress the six of us. From town to town And mama says When I come down Son, he's never dead While you're around Son, he's never dead While you're around